Motherhood has been used to oppress and exploit women for centuries, but it doesn't have to be this way. And as mothers, we're ready for a revolution. We love our kids, but we struggle with losing our identities, bearing the weight of motherhood without enough support, and striving to meet those impossible standards of what it means to be a good mother. It's time to openly discuss how motherhood is deeply affected by patriarchy, racism, and capitalism so that we can break free of these systems. As mothers, we know our work is valuable and has radical potential to birth a more equitable and inclusive future for ourselves and our children. Welcome to the Rebel Mothers Podcast. I'm your host, Susie Fishleader, and together we'll explore the challenges of modern motherhood and reclaim mothering as an act of liberation. Hey y'all, so today is a recording of an interview I did last spring for the podcast Total Liberation with Mexi. Mexi has been an absolute inspiration for me. I started listening to her podcast, Vegan Vanguard, in 2018 and really appreciated how she connected the idea of anti-speciesism to the systems of capitalism, white supremacy, and colonization. You know, she and her podcast, they were really, she was really instrumental in my early kind of unlearning of everything I thought I knew to be true. I used to take my dog Cooper for these long walks and listen to her podcast and I get all fired up about the connections I was making between the oppression of mothers along with these larger oppressive systems. So I became a Patreon supporter of Mexi's podcast. And then when she recently had a baby and posted on our private Patreon page, some of her realizations about being a parent in you know this late capitalist economy, I knew we had to talk more. So I reached out and she invited me on our podcast and we had an excellent conversation. Um, Mexi recently recorded her final episode of Total Liberation, but all the previous episodes are still available. She, You can find her on YouTube. She's got some excellent videos on her channel at Mexi, M-E-X-I-E, and her new show, Positive Leftist News. So I'm going to link to all of that in the show notes. I highly encourage you to check her out. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy our conversation from last March. How can we not only discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. Live in capitalism, its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Total Liberation Podcast. It's your host and brand new mom rad, Mexi. For anyone new to the show, my little dude Sylvan is 11 weeks old now, for those wanting to be precise or approaching three months for anyone who is just eternally frustrated by how people describe the age of babies. It's been a weird, wild, incredible, and wonderful experience, and it has been an eye-opener for me around a lot of what the socialist feminists have been talking about for a hundred years now, that capitalism, and especially this late-stage capitalism, along with the institutions of patriarchy and white supremacy, are so completely antithetical to effectively raising children while protecting one's mental and physical health. It's actually 
laughable sometimes <laughs> how antithetical like how have we accepted this for so long so today i'm thrilled to be speaking with susie fishlitter who has a master's in women gender and social justice with a focus on motherhood studies Susie works with birthing people postpartum who are dealing with identity loss, anger, and rage, and birth trauma. And as a Marxist and someone committed to total liberation herself, she wants to celebrate parenting, but is highly critical of motherhood as an institution that is deeply tied up with oppressive systems. So we'll start with some definitions and why we are even using the terms mother and motherhood, acknowledging that um, we live in a very gender diverse world. And then we move into each system in some detail, mixing in our own experiences with whatever theory that we're discussing. Something we forgot to mention, but we wanted to highlight up front, is that too often in leftist spaces, parents, and most often the parent taking on the role of mother, are excluded because childcare is not provided or the space just isn't set up to accommodate the needs of parents and children. I know that there are a lot of orgs that are conscious of this and are doing good work, but I still see so many parents and particularly mothers, you know, raising this issue. And it's something that is not talked about often on the left. I think parenting and the institution of motherhood in particular are just often not talked about on the left, especially in male dominated spaces, you know, just outside of the proletarian feminists. And it's a shame because the family, you know, social reproduction, these are all very pivotal parts of the reproduction of capitalism, especially when we're talking about nuclear families under patriarchy, etc. Um, and this is such an intimate part of people's lives that I would think should garner more attention, because I think it really lays bare the contradictions involved in all of these systems. So that's what we're here to partly rectify today, this, this you know, general lack of care for motherhood and uh, revolution in that realm. Uh, so thank you to our wonderful patrons who make this work possible. If you'd like to join our Discord and bi-monthly community calls, please go to patreon.com slash total liberation. And with that, please welcome Susie. I'm Susie Fishleader. Uh, I am an independent researcher and an educator on motherhood studies. And I also act as a coach for moms who are struggling with, you know, a loss of identity, um, anger, rage and motherhood or birth trauma. And what I do is I tie a lot of these issues in with those larger social constructs of patriarchy, whiteness, capitalism and religion, because I think that really can validate the challenges that a lot of mothers are facing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes it's really helpful to realize that what they're struggling with is not a result of like a personal failing or anything that they did or didn't do, but they're really the result of these larger systems that have restricted and limited their choices in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I absolutely love that because I feel like, you know, under these systems, uh, part of the point of the systems is to make us think that everything is just an individual failing. Yes. And I really do want to dig into more thinking about 
the ways in which mothers are struggling and, and what you've seen in your experience. Um, but I love that you're tying it to these broader systems because that's so incredibly important. And we need to change these systems if we're going to make any difference in you know parents' lives in general. Um, so I wanted to start with some definitions. Um, so how would you define mother, the experience of mothering and the institution of motherhood and why make the distinction? Yeah, so I think this is important to clarify. So I consider a mother to be anyone who takes on the work of nurturing, loving, and raising a child. Um, Patricia Hill Collins has kind of termed this mother work. So regardless of gender, biological relationship to the child, anyone can be a mother. Um, mm. So to be more specific and broad, mother really encompasses, you know, birth parent, same-sex parent, a stepmother, adoptive mother, an auntie, a grandparent. Uh, really anyone who identifies with the word mother. And I think there is a whole discussion to be had about whether men can mother, but I think that's probably a different conversation. <laughs> so, mm. um, but Dr. Andrea O'Reilly kind of stated, so the identity of mother can be distinct from the category of woman. So just as not all women are mothers, right? Not all mothers identify as women or either even of the gender binary. So I do sometimes use the word parent or birthing person, um, but since my work is primarily focused on the person who's raising the child, I, I do most often use the word mother because I also think we have specific cultural associations with that word that I wish to address. So, mm -hmm. so what if, I, I mean, if a man were raising the child, mm -hmm. would that be, would you consider that mothering? Or? Absolutely. And that's when we get into the distinction of mothering as the experience and motherhood as the institution, that's exactly it, you know, um, because the broader conversation is the act of raising a child can be this really powerful, empowering experience. Um, but we have to take it away from these social and cultural systems that are affecting that, that whole, you know, institution, I guess. Um, so let me clarify. So, so mothering and motherhood. So Adrian Rich really clarified the distinction between the experience of mothering and the institution of motherhood in her book of Woman Born. And then Andrea O'Reilly further expanded upon this in the book, Matricentric Feminism. So she explained that the term motherhood refers to the patriarchal institution of motherhood, which is male defined and controlled, is deeply oppressive to women. Whereas the word mothering refers to the woman's experience of mothering, is female defined and centered and is potentially empowering. So taking the gender out of it, you know, I think mothering is really, it's all that emotional action. It's reading the bedtime stories. It's the bath. It's the love and the feeding. And it's the action of mothering. And it can be incredibly profound and meaningful. But the institution of motherhood is the social institution that is designed to exploit labor, unpaid care and housework in the home. And it's manipulative and it's unfair and it results in inequality, right? So. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to see that they're separate because it allows us to kind of acknowledge that um, challenge that sometimes mothers feel when they're like, I love my kids, but I hate mothering, right? Mm -hmm. Or I hate motherhood. So you can enjoy the experience of mothering while still be frustrated and resentful about the institution of motherhood. So mm -hmm. having that language allows us to like start to dismantle what is actually causing the problem here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I guess it is difficult, you know, moving beyond the gender binary to still work with terms like mother and father and, and things like that. But I think that importantly, mother carries such a, 
I think, historical baggage, right? Because especially when we think about capitalism and the ways in which it profits off of the unpaid labor of mothers um, and, you know, the, the stigma that a lot of single mothers face under the system as well. Um, especially racialized single mothers, right? There's just, there's a lot of baggage with the term mother in general. Um, and it has been, you know, very gendered. So um, yeah, it's important to define these things and to also understand that it is tricky, you know, I guess. Right. <laughs> now well, that like a lot of the, a lot of the studies have done, you know, just men and women, right? That's the language that we're working with. Um, right, right. And then, you know, Sylvia Federici really tied that rise of capitalism to the control and subjugation of women's bodies. Right. So that is part of the conversation, but keeping that conversation open and having the discussion allow for more people to be involved, I think is only going to result in more quickly dismantling it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much for making those distinctions. I think that makes a lot of sense. So I'm really, really interested to know about, you know, what people, birthing people or mothers are struggling with postpartum, like in your experience, what would you say are the main issues that people are dealing with? Yeah. I mean, you know, the big ones, obviously, you know, postpartum maternal depression. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's on the rise. Studies have shown that um, like one in 10 children will experience a depressed mother at any given time. Mm -hmm. And then since the pandemic, and I know we're tired of talking about the pandemic and mothers, but like, I can't stop talking about it <laughs> because- mm -hmm you know, nearly half of mothers who had children at home at one point reported that their mental health had worsened, like half. Mm -hmm. So I just, I want to acknowledge too, that the work that I typically do is with somewhat privileged mothers. Um, I don't have a lot of them who are housing or food insecure. So those mm -hmm. obviously would be a huge issue. And we'll get into that when we talk about capitalism, because that's a whole thing. But what I really see people struggle with is, you know, isolation. Um, we've got this system where it's like we're all in our individual little homes by ourselves with our family and that can be really isolating and we were just not designed to raise our children's by our, our children by ourselves mm -hmm. um, I see people struggle with confidence you know they're feeling really overwhelmed and frustrated with all the housework the lack of support they receive I see people have guilt and shame at not living up to this like perfect mother myth which is totally tied into patriarchy and white supremacy. Um, and then a lot of people really struggle with that, like career versus motherhood, you know, mm -hmm. maybe they wanted to go back to work, but they couldn't afford childcare or they had to go back to work to just afford rent. Maybe they thought they'd go back to work, but now they decided they want to stay home. And so mm -hmm. that, you know, there's a lot of identity crisis. Um, you know, who am I now that I'm a mother is the old me gone. I'm, I'm also a yoga teacher. And so sometimes the yoga person in me comes out and it's like, look, it's the ego. The ego is just, right. hey, your value system is shifting and that's triggering the ego. So we're going to double down and hold tight to this identity that doesn't serve us anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's just a, a, a separate thing. But um, what, what really prompted me to start doing this work about talking about the systems is, so for years, my work revolved around healing mothers, right? I was a prenatal yoga teacher. I was an infant massage educator. Um, I was a chapter leader for ICANN, which is a cesarean birth support group. Mm. But these women would always leave these supportive circles and then they would go back to the world that was totally devaluing their existence. And I felt like over and over again, I kept holding space for like pain and bewilderment and frustration and exhaustion. And it was like, motherhood probably shouldn't be this hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we would have evolved this far if this many mothers were unhappy. So, oh my gosh, yeah, right, yeah. Um, 
So I took a few years. I got my master's degree in women's spirituality. And it was like, I wanted to study these systems and say, what is happening here? And that's really when I got to this understanding that we have to go upstream, right? We have to change those social structures. We can't support women un until we change that, really. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, I have so much, to, so much to respond to. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, just in my own experience, um, I felt, uh, you know, like when I first came home from the hospital, uh, yes. it was just me and my partner. Mm -hmm. And um, I d very quickly sunk into what I would say was, you know, postpartum depression or at least, you know, extreme postpartum anxiety. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was completely overwhelmed. Um, I was weepy all the time. I was frustrated. It wasn't until, um, you know, my mom started coming and helping us and she would stay overnight to help with the, the night times because those were really difficult for me with my chronic illness. Yeah. Um, and she would leave during the day to go, you know, rest and get stuff done. And as soon as she would walk out the door, I would just start weeping because I just felt so like, I can't do this without you. You know, I, I you know, um, it was just so, uh, yeah, I, I was just in a very, very dark place. Um, but thinking more about it, I was just like, well, of course, I mean, of course, we were never meant to raise our children by ourselves. And I don't think, I mean, even, I, yeah, I think about evolution and, I, and I'm like, how could it possibly be evolutionarily advantageous to have a birthing person go through, um, you know, just the physical demands of labor, you know, well, being pregnant in yep. general, and then going through the experience of labor and being exhausted and having your hormones, you know, going bonkers. Um, how could it possibly be evolutionary, av evolutionarily advantageous to have that person then be the sole person responsible for breast or chest feeding them all through the night? And I don't think it was like that, right? It was we were living in in groups yep. and it was a community and i think that multiple people could breastfeed the same child right yes. so yep. it wasn't just all on one person and there's such a you know obviously there's a lot out there about you know breast is best and um i've come to to think that well fed is best yes. but <laughs> um but you, I, again you know under i guess patriarchy and, and capitalism and this institution of motherhood um there's this idea that like if if you don't exclusively breastfeed then you are also failing as a mother and yet it's how can you possibly be expected to be up every hour of the day and right. night after you've just gone through this, doing this all by yourself, right? right? Of course, people are falling into postpartum depression. Of course, they have postpartum anxiety. I mean, we're so atomized, you know. Yep. <laughs> yes, all of that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's just, um, I, I guess this whole experience has just thrown into stark relief um, how oppressive these systems really are. And so I think that's that's the importance of your work, right? That you're really bringing that lens to all of these issues with people all the time. So, because yeah. I, you know, and I'm, I'm sure this has probably come up, but like, I think like you're saying, it, of course we're depressed. Of course we're anxious. Of course mm -hmm. it feels like nothing's working, but then that gets pathologized and it's like, oh, you now have a diagnosis. I was right. diagnosed with postpartum depression 10 months after my second child was born. Because mm -hmm. there's a whole like hormonal drop after nine months of breastfeeding and like it's a whole thing. But you know, I, I had two children under the age of three. I've gone back to work. I was like totally, you know, 
malnourished and exhausted, but the conversation was, oh, you're depressed. Here's some. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. I guess I'll just take a medication now, which thank God for medication. Right. Yes, for sure. But also like, where was that larger conversation about why I was feeling so shitty in the first place, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. So let's dig into these systems now. (laughs) Um, So you run workshops actually talking about the ways in which motherhood is shaped by systems such as capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy, and patriarchal religions. I kind of lump that into patriarchy. Um, But let's start with capitalism. So of course, as we mentioned, this runs thanks to the unpaid labor of mothers. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the ways that capital makes motherhood so challenging? Oh, so many ways. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, especially too in capitalism upholding, well, really all of the systems uphold and support each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so specifically under capitalism, one thing that I forget where I heard this, but it was really like a punch to the gut when I, when someone pointed out that, um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the very, very basic bottom one, like your basic physiological needs of survival under capitalism, all of that shit costs money. So mm-hmm. like, Food, water, shelter, clothing, healthcare, none of it is guaranteed to us as a basic human right. We have just put it out to the market for a cost. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, under patriarchy and then under white supremacy, that's when you get women and especially women of color who are really struggling to just survive. And that's pretty terrible. (laughs) So, right, right, that right there. Mm -hmm. Um, But then even more simply as like, you know, the mental load and and the emotional load of motherhood um, being totally devalued under capitalism. And it's just, it's a very gendered thing. So the, the there is labor of managing children's schedules and remembering birthday presents and driving them to sports activities and all those things. And it's done by the mother. Typically, it's done with little respect or even acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Um, then like what I said about the career versus motherhood, you know, it's really, it's this so-called choice that's been shaped and defined. Um, and it's, and it is defined and informed by the fact that we have in the United States, at least zero protected paid maternity leave. Um, you know, we have the minimum wage that isn't even an actual living wage. Mm -hmm. It's like, we don't have, we have very minimal protections for women and mothers in the workplace and in government. And so our choice of working or staying home is already limited. Um, And then even stereotypically female jobs that are available, like nursing or teaching, those are already also severely underpaid. So we're familiar with this wage gap, which is even worse for women of color. And it's this, it just, it all kind of reinforces this like patriarchal system that women and mothers are supposed to stay at home and take care of the children, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Consumerism is is a whole conversation, especially like the labor of consumerism and shopping and all the stuff of motherhood. But one of the things I realized when I was teaching prenatal yoga is that the only real rite of passage we have to celebrate birth is a baby shower, mm-hmm. which is like just consumerism and gifts. And it's actually not even centered on the mom. It's gifts for the baby. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, so this this motherhood, this like loss of identity, here's this amazing transformative thing you're going to go through. Here's some presents. Here's some things to buy. Go make a list of all the things that you need and want, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, we see this in the complete lack of social support for mothers, you know, no government provided daycares, no public cafeterias. It's all done by 
individual mothers um, mm -hmm. instead of sharing the load communally, like what, what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think we really see this in, we've created this sort of culture of competition instead of collaboration. And that's mm -hmm. what I see a lot in capitalism, right? But this manifest in motherhood is the so the stupid nonsense about mommy wars, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole thing that actually isn't a thing. Um, I 100% have never judged or been like angry at a mother for any of her choices. Right. But it's like pitches this competitive thing all to kind of keep us on our toes. And it's, I think it is, it's that inherent competitive nature of capitalism that has influenced our social behaviors toward each other. And so we feel like we're all in competition for these scarce resources, which is just all nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That was such a great explanation. Um, and just um, going off of a few things that you said, I mean, first of all, it's absolutely criminal that there's no guaranteed parental leave in the United States. <laughs> that is wild. I cannot, yeah. I cannot wrap my head around that. Um, but I mean, here in Canada, it's, you know, it's good that we have something, but it's truly not that great. Yeah. Um, so basically everyone here, I didn't even realize this until, you know, it came time for me to do it. Um, I thought that I, I mean, there, so let me backtrack. Uh, my job is, uh, you know, I, I piece together a number of contracts in academia and um, I do self-employed work. You know, I, I get money from Patreon, things like that. So I thought that when I was going to go on maternity leave, I had to apply for, there's something called, um, you know, unemployment insurance maternity. Okay. Um, and I thought that I was kind of unique in needing this, um, you know, this support from the government because of the way that I earn my income. Um, like I don't have one employer that would give me parental leave. Mm -hmm. However, I've come to realize that actually that's how it works. So even if you mm -hmm. are employed at a company, they just, you know, everyone goes on this EI maternity and then potentially your employer might top you up to a higher percentage of your um, initial pay. Uh, but basically it's everyone gets 55% of what they were making. And for me, it was really difficult to calculate oh, yeah. because, yeah, yeah, because it was like, well, what from what point are we going to calculate this? Like my, my income varies every month to month. Um, but anyway, so 55%. <laughs> <laughs> of what, what you were making uh, in this economy as inflation right. is just absolutely skyrocketing is not right. enough. And all I could think about was what about single parents, right? And yes. again, like going back to the single single mothers um, who are have been so stigmatized, especially racialized sing single mothers, like how are you going to support yourself on 55% right. of your income uh, now you're also supporting a child potentially on your own. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when I think about, you know, some of the moms who come to me and they're like, I don't know if I should go back to work or not, or if I should just be a stay at home mom. And I think to myself, why can't single moms be stay at home moms? Like why? Right. And, and of course, maybe some of them can. And again, this goes back to that community, that mother work. A lot of moms and mothers have the support of community, um, which is phenomenal, but mm -hmm. I just feel like every person who has a child should have the option of being able to stay at home and right. rest and nourish their body and nourish their child. And if that is what they want to do, right? So mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it is criminal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you know the the consumerism piece. I also find that so interesting when I think about the rest of the world. Right, this seems like um, a very Western kind of preoccupation i feel like there's so many places in the world where they're not going out and buying you know little baby tubs and <laughs> yeah i mean even diapers oh, yes, right yeah, like yeah, even yeah. diapers are a thing and and most diapers i found out um take 400 years to decompose yep um like the regular kind of plastic ones i guess um which is wild, right? Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. just so funny because so much of this stuff is really framed as, well, you need this for this reason. And it's like, well, I can't get by without that. Yeah. Um, and you just think about all, yeah, all the places in the world, um, in the global South, just outside of like the West, mm -hmm. where I don't think they're buying even half of this stuff. <laughs> I was gifted this, and it actually was kind of helpful. It was like this, hollow spoon thing so I could like pour puree into the sort of this thing and then I would screw a spoon top onto it and then I could squeeze it and like the puree would come out into the spoon so I could then smooth it <laughs> stuff. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, okay yes this is helpful um what a waste <laughs> right 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 yeah. yeah so much I know I know Oh, um, and then, you know, as well, thinking about healthcare and how under neoliberalism that's being increasingly privatized. Um, I mean, I know in Canada, I am very privileged in that we at least have, you know, free ish healthcare. Um, I know that I, I don't know what your experience was. Maybe we can get into that, but, um, my friend Abby Abby Martin actually has been uh, vocal about how uh, she had to pay. I think you know thousands of dollars yep. um, just to give birth in the hospital. And if there had been any complications and she would have had to stay longer in the hospital, it would have been you know just astronomically expensive. Um, for myself, um, I was planning a home birth that didn't quite work out that way. So I ended up in the hospital. Um, and luckily, you know, it's, it's, it's free to be there. Um, but the only reason that they kept me overnight, like usually you would just be in and out same day. Uh, the only reason they kept me overnight is because I was bleeding quite a bit. And so they wanted to monitor, monitor me. Um, but if that hadn't happened, it would have just been in and out, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think about, you know, when my mom was having kids, um, like our parents' generation, they would be able to stay in the hospital for a week if they wanted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they would have classes being taught by nurses. You know, here's how you breastfeed. Here's how you wash your baby, change your baby, do whatever with your baby. Here's, you know, just... Um, support and extra hands there to help so you can rest and you know um especially waiting for your milk to come in because um right. for people for people who don't know it usually comes in within i guess a couple days to up to a week and it can be really challenging before it comes in and for myself that was it was very challenging mine didn't come in for like at least a week and um so i was supplementing with formula and whatever but i mean uh, even when i stayed the one night they showed me how to breastfeed one time, like one time. Yeah. They were like, here's how you get them to latch. And then they just left. And then I'm, I'm alone in this room overnight with this baby. I don't know what the fuck to do. <laughs> I've just like had this, you know, uh, you know, very um, intense at, at the very least experience, uh, kind of traumatic. And I was bleeding a lot. So I'm exhausted. Um, it had been a, you know, a long day. Um, and here I am overnight with this baby. And, and I'm like, okay, and now I need to try to get him to latch again. 
and he's crying and I'm like, what the hell? You know? So I had to, I called them back in to help me. And luckily they came in and they did. But if I wasn't bleeding, then I would just be at home crying, being like, I don't, I don't know what to do. My baby's crying. I don't like I've, you showed me this one time. (laughs) Right. It feels like it's like a, like they, they, they have a box to check on their little clipboard. They're like, okay, check shoulder moving on. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's, that's even in Canada where we do have a socialized healthcare system, but over the years it has been increasingly gutted to the point where they don't offer these services. And, you know, I, luckily I did have a midwife team. However, the only reason I got in with that midwife team is because I knew somebody who worked with them. Otherwise I was on a wait list everywhere and it's actually very difficult to get midwife care. And then if you don't, then you, you just really don't have any aftercare and you're just there you know, I, I just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is, it is. And I think there's such a conversation, a rich conversation to be had about the medicalization of birth and, yes. you know, the power that's been taken away um, from midwives. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. conversation about, you know, the midwife being just removed from the birthing experience, um, the, the, like, the, the rite of passage of birthing in the hospital and all the symbolism. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. This is actually a great book. Um, I think it's Robbie Floyd, the American birth as an American rite of passage. Mm. And it's this whole thing about how, yeah, giving birth in the hospital actually from that experience specifically is designed to uphold patriarchy mm. and like impress upon the birthing person. This is the role that you are now meant to play in society. And it's like subservience and, mm. Oh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, let's move on to yeah. uh, patriarchy, I suppose. And I think the nuclear family is something that kind of bridges capitalism and patriarchy because it's very tied to capitalist atomization and it makes raising children incredibly challenging. Um, so how would you say that this model disadvantages mothers? Yeah, so I remember reading um, Patricia Hill Collins' essay. It's it's all in the family, intersections of gender, race, and nation. And she described six elements of that kind of idealized nuclear family and how each of these elements affect, you know, our cultural views of gender, of race, of national identity. And so they, it's, it's the six elements are manufactured hierarchy, um, home space, like what it is to be in a home your blood ties and kinship, your rights and responsibilities, inheritance and social class and family planning. And so what she, she goes on to explain that like that traditional family, you know, has the male head of household and it creates that hierarchy that really privileges and naturalizes masculinity as a source of authority. Um, There's also like a, you know, the relationship of domination between parents and children that kind of prioritizes age and seniority. Mm-hmm. And then it also the family, that family ideal, emphasizing that there's like a heterosexual partnership between the mother and the father as like the ideal. Now we've gotten into heteronormativity, a gender binary, these really prescriptive gender stereotypes. And this is all from the family, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's it's gender, it's age, it's sexuality. These are all social systems that are upheld by that family unit. And then mm-hmm. of course, you're impressing these things upon the children within the home. So like children replicate what they are raised with. So Rianne Eisler has some really great work about the dominator partner or the dominator systems of like culture or a partnership system of culture. And so moving toward that partnership co-creation family model is like a really good shift that we're, we need to get to because right now that nuclear family just emphasizes that domination. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then patriarchy in general, there's so many things that it does for motherhood. <laughs> <laughs> like just, just as a few, you, you, this is where you get that story that like every woman is expected to become a mother, right? Mm -hmm. And so those of us who were um, cultured as women from the time we were children, we were told the story, like, you aren't going to, you're going to love to be a mother. You're going to want to be mother. So that is what, you know, women who decide that they don't want to have children, that they know they don't want to have children really feel that pressure mm -hmm. and it limits that role that like aunties can play and extended kinship and that mother work could be done by people who aren't biologically related to the child. So mm -hmm. it's all problems. Um, we get that story that like, you know, mothers should prioritize their children 24 seven, um, moms are totally responsible for the children. So, you know, if you see a child acting out in public, those of us who are moms know, like we will make eye contact with the mother and be like, I got you. I know this. It is not yeah. <laughs> it's so good that mom must be terrible. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think we get this story of like, you know, father knows best. There's that like father is the head of the household and this can manifest. I see this a lot with my clients where they're like, it's the always to me, it's always the moms who are we're the ones who are reading the parenting books. We're in all the Facebook groups. You know, we're reading all the blogs. Like we want to be gentle, compassionate, like conscious parents. Mm -hmm. But because men under patriarchy are really separated from feeling a lot of those feelings, right? Then they kind of come at this as like, you're going to make the kids soft and um, you need to set boundaries and you need to let the baby cry through the night. So, mm -hmm. and, and I'm obviously, even in this conversation, creating a lot of gender stereotypes, right? You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but this is what that, that system does. It creates, it paints this picture. And so even in a partnership that could be normally considered pretty equitable, now all of a sudden you have this like up against each other about how do we raise our children? Um, because, you know, especially, especially if they're raising a boy and the man is thinking maybe consciously or unconsciously, I need this, you know, this boy's got to be tough, right? He's mm -hmm. got to survive in this world that makes men, embody this masculine ideal. And so you got to just let him tough it out. And it, it, it's, I have no words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just the whole thing. Um, so yeah, that's just some of the ways. Oh, and then getting your body back. Don't even get me started. Yeah. <laughs> I will get started. <laughs> but like, there's that whole, this is part of the identity loss too, because under patriarchy, the male view is the norm. So woman is other which means we are kind of perceived as objects in relation to the men that we you know, serve or are subservient to. And those objects are meant to be beautiful and collectible. So this is where, you know, women are supposed to be beautiful. That's kind of where that ideal comes from. But even after we become mothers, there's this pressure to get your body back because you're still supposed to be sexually attractive to men in mm -hmm. society mm -hmm. and just gross. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the male gaze is so, so pervasive. We talked about that a lot on this channel. And um, if your value is tied to the way that you look, then yeah, there's going to be a ton of pressure to get your body back, even just to be listened to, right? Even just to be regarded about things that have nothing to do with your body. It's just, you know, there's so much erasure of people you know women as they age and they age out of this kind of male gaze ideal um or yeah they be they become mothers their bodies change and then suddenly um they're yeah they're just erased and i think that also as you said ties into the identity loss um 
So yeah, I mean, all of that is absolutely uh, makes mothering uh, very, very challenging. Um, I, you know, realized this idea of the nuclear family being, I mean, I already kind of understood that it was problematic before this experience. But, you know, as I mentioned, um, the anxiety and overwhelm that I felt before I had the help from my mom, um, or we had the help from my mom. Um, and then we actually ended up moving in with my parents for a few weeks. I mean, thank God we were able to do that uh, at, at the beginning there. Um, and, you know, like multi-generational households, that seems to be the only sane way to right. raise a child within yes. the first 40 days at least, right? And um, in the West, we really... Uh, you know, we really frown upon that. And we actually, there's laws here to make sure, I mean, in, in different municipalities, you know, only so many people can live in a house and in any particular dwelling, right? So they really, um, and I think it's it's really racially targeted against um, people who uh, come here from different cultures and who have, you know, different ideas and expectations about multi-generational households and we've put these laws in place to discourage that but it's it's just so part of this capitalist atomization that just makes the institution of motherhood so incredibly oppressive and ridiculous frankly right, right. from the <laughs> yeah for sure absolutely um and so you talk also about patriarchal religions so um how would you say that those disadvantaged mothers so the religions really disadvantage mothers. It's okay. So I got my master's degree in women's spirituality. And as a yoga teacher, I found that when I was able to tap into like a spiritual practice that actually nourished me and affirmed me, that was really meaningful. Um, so religion or like spirituality or spiritual beliefs, I think as a whole, aren't inherently oppressive. Mm -hmm. It's those patriarchal ones because what it does is it says that everything that we've just described is actually ordained by God. Mm. So, you know, when those of us who understand that like our behaviors are socially constructed, we try, you know, we're out there talking about this and the essentialists will come at us and they'll say, no, that's not true. It's your biology. Like you're a woman, mm -hmm. so you're just inherently more nurturing, right? Mm -hmm. And then religion comes at us and says, oh, actually, you're that way because you were designed by God to be that way. And so this is a natural hierarchy that is, you know, divine to the order of the universe. Like, mm -hmm. how do you argue that? <laughs> it's really, right. you know, so that's where, that's where I really struggle with, with religion is just that it creates this, this manufactured hierarchy um, that people don't, you know, can't compete against. And then, even then within a lot of the contemporary religious beliefs, you know, you have creation stories that, you know, the biblical creation story of Adam and Eve. I mean, that just from the beginning, it explicitly lays out a social hierarchy of men over women, of women over children, children over animal, animal over plants, right? And I know this ties mm -hmm. in a lot with your um, speciesism work because it's like, from the beginning, there's this hierarchy and it's been used to support like thousands of years of these male-centered households. Um, I think what happens is men start to kind of feel justified, justified by God himself in replicating mm -hmm. that domination in every aspect of lives. So if you compare that to some of the other creation stories that are out there, right, like the earth diver or sky woman creation story in some of the Native American tribes, mm -hmm. that there's a woman and her daughter, right? Like it creates a society that is more egalitarian. And so 
I just have to imagine like, or if you look at Hinduism and you look at Kali, you know, this Kali is this form of feminine energy that is, she is a bloodthirsty warrior. She's a goddess of ritual possession. She's a sexual partner. And she's also like an all loving, compassionate mother. And you compare Kali to like the Virgin Mary and these expectations of what it actually means to be like the perfect mother start to now become quiet, humble, obedience, a virgin, um, mm-hmm. kind, it displays no jealousy or anger or emotion. And so that's how these religious narratives really start to define for us um, what is acceptable in motherhood and what is idealized and can be can be really limiting, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Sky Woman because I was going to mention that. I always shout out Braiding Sweetgrass yes! um, by Robin Wallkemmerer, <laughs> my favorite book ever. Um, and she does make that distinction between the story of Adam and Eve and Sky Woman and, and the implications of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think obviously there are ways to practice religions that are, you know, not hierarchical or, or playing into uh, some of the, the more problematic aspects of all of this. However, absolutely. I mean, this is where you get into, you know, the trad wife kind of ideal, right. like white supremacists, you know, neo-Nazis, they really draw on this essentialism um, that is, you know, so tied to uh, religious tropes. So yeah, absolutely. So living in settler states, uh, Canada and the U.S., white supremacy is obviously inescapably woven into every aspect of our lives. Um, So could you talk a bit about the history of Black motherhood in America and how racism and whiteness still affect motherhood today? For sure. And I want to first take a second to acknowledge that I am white. You know, I'm able-bodied. I'm college educated. um, So like my family and I have, we have totally benefited from these systems of white supremacy, of colonization and capitalism. Um, so when I, when I talk about like my life's work being to dismantle the systems that oppress people, some at the benefit of others, like it's important for me to recognize that my identity and privilege are there and I have to be really deliberate about what I say, what I write, what I do. So I'm not maintaining these systems. Um, so, you know, for me as a white woman to be talking about the history of black motherhood in America, I just want to like put that out there first, that I am not the best person to listen to. There are far more scholars who are out there, but, but it is inescapably, like you said, interwoven in these systems. And so it, it must be talked about no matter how uncomfortable it is. Right. Mm-hmm. So in the essay I referenced earlier, um, Patricia Hill Collins, she talks about how that nuclear family is also used to maintain white supremacy. And it's kind of like what you were just saying, like these racial ideologies that portray people of color as intellectually underdeveloped and uncivilized, it requires parallel ideas that construct whites as intellectually mature and civilized, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And so we, when it's applied to race, that family rhetoric that deems adults as more developed than children and thus entitled to greater power, it uses these naturalized ideas about age and authority to kind of continue to legitimize racial hierarchy. Um, I mean, I think especially in the United States, the legacy of slavery, the way that affects BIPOC women and Black mothers especially, you see, you know, racism in, in the mortality, the higher rates of maternal mortality, mm-hmm. lower rates of breastfeeding. There's this really great book by Kimberly Sears Allers called The Big Letdown. Um, and about, it's about, you know, patriarchy and racism and feminism kind of undermining the rates of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. You see higher rates of women of color who have to work outside the home 
And I think it's just really important for white women to remember that there was a time when it was perfectly legal for some women in this country to be forced to bear children of rape, forced mm-hmm. to have to give up those children, forced to be sterilized, mm-hmm. all while caring for other women's children. So that generational trauma that is intimately tied with motherhood is still in effect today, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um Separate from that, the culture of white supremacy shows up, you know, in white people's lives too, right? It, it gives us this culture of perfectionism, right? We can only show that flawless version of ourselves. So the parts that don't conform to the dominant culture's norms are kept hidden, but the dominant culture is infused with white supremacy. So it's also this like self-perpetuating cycle because sometimes like we feel like we can't talk about racism because we're going to say something that's wrong. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't say it perfectly. So I'm just not going to talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. So perfectionism really stops us from dismantling racism as well. Mm-hmm. And I just think, again, in all of these systems being supportive and upholding each other, like no one is free until we are all free. We can't just dismantle one and not the other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, white supremacy is based on this ideology that there are different races and that the white race is superior and that for white supremacy to survive, there must always be like a subordinate to oppress. There's someone on the top and there's someone at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And so that domination, you know, hierarchy model, it, it's present in everything we've talked about, but I think it's really obvious in white supremacy. Um, mm-hmm. But then one thing that I really want to bring up that's been really powerful and inspiring for me, you know, Bell Hooks wrote about the home place is a site of resistance for black motherhood. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up, you know, I was very much under the, the sway of the white feminists, right? The, you know, the 1960s and 70s who were like, you know, we should go out and we should get a career and we should be able to live right. our homes, right? But these generations of black mothers saw motherhood as a refuge and a place where they were able to express love and creativity and create these kinship networks and share childcare responsibilities communally. So mm-hmm. home was a site of resistance to white supremacy. And I think we can learn a lot from that because um, like we've been talking about, you know, these, these white moms who are like trapped all by themselves, isolated in these <laughs> yeah. families. We're like, we need some aunties. We need some sisters around us. Right. And, and hundreds of years of black motherhood, they already saw that. They knew that. They, they, they kept mm-hmm. that going. And so mm-hmm. I think that's important to... Um, maintain and and take inspiration from. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's racism inherent in this nuclear family, uh, you know, non-multi-generational household concept, right? Um, And this idea that you should just be able to do it on your own um, because that, that comes with the baggage of, you know, well, I guess it just comes with the assumption that we're talking about basically like a white middle-class suburban couple where the man is working so the mom can stay home. Right. Um, whereas, you know, for a lot of people, it was like, no, I could never stay home. It was never a choice. I don't need a movement telling me to go back to work. I'm at work. I'm, you know, I'm struggling. Um, so, yeah. And, and I mean, you brought up, um, the sterilization point. I mean, that that's huge. We actually talked about that in the last episode that I just released about the politics of birth control um, and how, um, you know, even this 
quote unquote liberatory thing. I mean, obviously it, it has been quite liberatory, um, but I mean, it, it has an extremely dark history where it was tested on people of color, women of color um, in, you know, and they bore the brunt of, you know, I mean, death and a, a number of other side effects that happened to them. And it was completely without their consent or their knowledge. Um, and then, you know, uh, black women, indigenous women, indigenous women across Canada are still being sterilized today. It's, it comes out in the news all the time. And so, um, yeah, I mean, white supremacy is such an oppressive force, uh, an oppressive force when we're talking about motherhood. Um, so yes, thank you for illuminating that. And, and then of course, um, yeah, as, as white people, um, we are not the best people to <laughs> talk about that. So um, I will include uh, links to all of the resources that you mentioned uh, here today for everyone to check out. Um, I also thought about it in terms of patriarchy, I think we didn't talk much about patriarchal trauma and mm. the fact, you know, um, domestic violence and things like that. But I think that's obviously uh, something that is um, quite oppressive to mothers and children and really p plays into that whole, um, you know, parents over children yes. kind of domination narrative. And we talk a lot on this channel about the fact that, you know, I, I really think that patriarchal trauma is responsible for, you know, perpetuating so much of the ills of the world, right? Like if, if you look at a lot of the violence that is done in our society, um, on an individual level, you can often trace that back to patriarchal trauma. And so, of course, it's part of these broader systems. But um, I mean, patriarchy is, <laughs> is a system that is perpetuated through patriarchal trauma. Um, and so I think that that's a really serious, serious thing that we're dealing with as, as all people, I guess. It really is. There's, um, I have a quote, let me find it. Um, so this is from Rianne Eisler and she writes, for most of recorded history, parental violence against children and men's violence against wives was explicitly or implicitly condoned. Mm -hmm. Those who had the power to prevent and or punish this violence through religion, law or custom openly or tacitly approved it. So like we're facing thousands of years of this patriarchal culture that has hurt and killed women and children. Mm -hmm. And the system has been supported and upheld and even like encouraged by those who had the power to change it. So we all have this unlearning to do. Um, mm -hmm. And I think something that really ties into capitalism that we didn't get into, but is intimately tied with this, you know, when we are in a system that puts everything out to the market, and so there is no social support structure, whether that's provided by the state or just the community, a lot of times partner the partner who earns less money, which under patriarchy is a woman typically, is mm -hmm. then forced to be dependent upon a man to do the earning for her. So you see this real trap of women who are stuck in these abusive relationships, perhaps, because they can't afford to leave, especially if they have children, um, because there is no social support structure that, you know, holds them. And then like in the US, the only thing we have that does is welfare. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks to Ronald Reagan and like, you know, years of neoliberal just sort of devaluing like the, the welfare queen and all of this mm -hmm. nonsense, like right. this one social support that we actually do have, you're sort of shamed into, into not taking it. Right. Absolutely. And that is racialized as well. hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. Here we go. They're all, they're all connected. It's all connected. Right. <laughs> right. And tied to single motherhood. Yep. So yep. yeah. Yep. 
yeah, there's a lot going on there. So yeah, yeah but that that patriarchal trauma, I like the way you phrase that because it is it is a trauma that we are all dealing with and suffering from. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then if you don't, you know, if we don't take a trauma informed approach to uh, revolution, we end up just externalizing that trauma onto other people. Um, so yeah, we try to try to bring that into our discussions as well. Um, so speaking of revolution, you talk about the need for a motherhood revolution. So I'm wondering what would that look like for you? And how can it work with and support with the broader societal revolution? So, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's us, it's these conversations, right? Um, it's, it's all of us individually and collectively, you know, working together to dismantle these institutions um, and to create this situation where motherhood is like easy and fun and joyful and maybe what being a mother was supposed to mean in the first place, right? So mm -hmm. it's one of the workshops that I run is, um, it's called Writing Your Revolutionary Mothering Manifesto. So I took a lot of inspiration from the Communist Manifesto in this like really urgent and bold and uh, kind of to the point form of writing that is this declaration of like, these are my core values, these are my beliefs, and here is how I'm going to intentionally use the experience of mothering to create a family, my own family that is based more on that partnership family model than the dominator model. So then that, and then also then how do I take that from my own home and then expand it out into my community, out to the world? How do I teach my children? That kind of thing. So mm -hmm. eating that manifesto is like that kind of blueprint on how to both enjoy the act of mothering because we do have to still be joyful about it. You know, I think sometimes we get caught up in this, like the burdens of motherhood, um, mm -hmm. I think it's, it can be really powerful to name how challenging motherhood can be sometimes, but sometimes I get concerned when it's like, yes, but it's also really great. So we can't forget mm -hmm. that, you know, having children is, is amazing and can be really empowering. It's a, it's a yes. And it's mm -hmm. yes, I can enjoy these aspects of mothering and I can hate these aspects. And I can also be working to dismantle the things that make it so, you know, oppressive. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's why I love the distinction between mothering and motherhood, because it's like, I, you know, yeah, I love mothering. But what I hate is <laughs> the way that we're forced to do mothering under yeah. these systems, right? So I, what I hate is the systems. Right. Um, so absolutely. I, I love that. I love that kind of motherhood manifesto. And I will just say that, you know, I think some of the loudest voices on the online left are white men <laughs> right? um, who uh, spend a lot of time, you know, arguing back and forth and trying to prove that, you know, they are the more big brained leftist than some other smaller brained leftist. Um, but when you actually go out into organizing spaces, I mean, the most rad organizers are middle-aged racialized yep. mothers they're the ones yep. out there doing the fucking work and like yeah, they are for sure you know for they're they're probably you know the busiest people already dealing with you know the burden of the institution of motherhood but they are uh, you know very often the ones getting shit done and so yeah i just i love I love all of that. Just kind of bringing your your wishes for transforming your own life as a mother within your own family, and then kind of externalizing that into the community, and and you know really living up to this idea that it does take a community. Um, mm -hmm. And then what else can the community do, right? Because right. right. the community can do a lot together, right? So yeah, 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's really powerful about kind of reframing that action of mothering into being something that's really empowering. Because, you know, I think a lot of what we've been talk talking about today, you know, under patriarchy and everything is designed to suppress women's power. This is where I'm going to get all like spiritual and woo-woo. But like mm -hmm. when we can tap into that, when we can tap into that kind of feminine, mothering, nurturing, creative energy that is all intimately linked to mothering, right? Your, mm -hmm. your sexual organs, like your, your creative juices, it's all right there. When we can tap into that, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, we're unstoppable, right? Mm -hmm. And so remembering that that is there is helpful, I think, for, for some people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, I take a lot of inspiration from, you know, the Idle No More movement up in mm -hmm. Canada, which was an Indigenous led movement that was predominantly led by Indigenous women. Um, and a lot of them mothers, right? Um, and, you know, water protectors everywhere. I, again, a lot of them are Indigenous women, Indigenous mothers, um, and, and their children. And I, yeah, it's just, it's really, um, yeah, there there is a lot of power in that if you kind of choose to see it that way. And we just have to unite to dismantle these systems because, yeah, all, I mean, all of us atomized and having absolutely no time to even shower in the day, let alone think about organizing, it just yeah. serves serves capital and serves yeah. patriarchy. And that's the way it's supposed to, it's designed to be, right? We're supposed to be stuck in the home, depressed and, um, you know, just struggling to get by so that we're we're not we're not uniting to, to not challenge any of this, right? Burning the fucking system to the ground. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Um, those are all the questions I have for today. And I, I just love everything that we've covered. Um, do you have anything else that you would like to add for our listeners? No, I don't think so. I think, yeah, just that that remembering that, yes, these systems are there to oppress us. And, and yes, we can take them down. It might not happen in our generation or our children's generation, but we're we're constantly moving it forward. And I, I really do see that change is happening. And so um, just remembering to like, keep your head up, you know, and, and keep up the good fight, I guess. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. Um, would you like to shout out where people can find you? Yes. So I'm primarily on Instagram because I am a 41-year-old white woman. So <laughs> <laughs> it's at Susie.fishleader and, you know, the spelling will be in there. Um, and then my website is just SusieFishleader.com and you can keep up with, you can sign up for my newsletter and keep up with like events and things I'm doing the next time I host my workshops, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of this today, I think, and hope everyone has gotten a lot out of this. And um, yeah, just really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.